Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the Board of Directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Fraser-Clark, and I'm here with my co-host, Lester Tate. And today we have uh, an exciting podcast episode for you. We're bringing you Jay Cook, a very famous trial lawyer here in Georgia. And we're going to talk with Jay at length about his career and his cases and, and his specialty is medical malpractice cases. But let me tell you a little bit first about Mr. Cook, Jay Cook, a trial lawyer in Athens with the firm Cook Tolly. And he is a native of Savannah, but went to Georgia uh, undergrad, University of Georgia and University of Georgia Law School. He is a past president of Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. He's also a past president of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, our sponsor of this podcast. He's also a past president of the State Bar of Georgia. He was admitted to the Georgia Bar in 1964 and currently uh, practices in Athens and downtown. And uh, one of the lawyers who practices with him is his son, J.W. Cook, which I think is fantastic to have your child practice law with you. And Jay also teaches medical malpractice cases at the University of Georgia Law School now as an adjunct professor. Uh, So, uh, Jay, welcome to the show. It's good to see you, Jay. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, Uh, good to see you, Lester. My pleasure, sir. Yeah, so uh, we're here in the the midst of this uh, COVID-19 thing. We're doing this all uh, by Zoom here. Um, and, uh, I, I, have you ever seen anything like this in your career, uh, Jay? I mean, did you, have you ever seen the courts, you know, the, the, uh, chief justice has shut the courts down till May 13th as, uh, as he has had to do because of the crisis that we're facing. Uh, but I, I've just never seen anything like it. And I wonder if, if you have. No, um, I haven't. And I don't think anybody that I know of has this unusual as we know. And um, I think the courts have done a fairly good job of trying to keep uh, some lines open to the public. If you've got a, uh, an abuse matter or a real estate matter or something that you need uh, criminal access for, um, they have mechanisms to take care of that. So I think they're doing a fairly good job. Well, uh, some people have made comparisons to you know, to September 11th and, uh, and, and as the, this type of national crisis. Uh, do, do you agree with those comparisons? You know, there, there are some, some opportunities um, that were take, that uh, could have been taken care of a little better after um, 9-11 um, that we are presented with uh, again, and that is the opportunity for all of us to be on the same page, that's, that's rare. It's rare in America, and it's rare uh, that we have this chance where everybody is in agreement uh, just about. If we use vehicles like the Civil Justice Foundation to message the importance of what we have going on and educate the public. So, yes, there are some things. There are some things that are different, too. Um, you start trying to divide people up and do blame games and stuff like that, and it can cause problems. It caused uh, President Bush some problems when he when he had some of those, but he did some good things too. I mean, he went to a mosque, which was really good. So yes, there were some wonderful things that um, and, and good coming together, uh, both both parties and the American people then, and I think we have an opportunity for that to happen now. Jay, you mentioned uh, the purpose of the Civil Justice Foundation. You served as its president for how many years? A long time, I know. Gosh, uh, you know, um, I'd have to call on Fred Smith to tell me how long. I don't know. Okay, long time. It was a long time. I knew it was time to give it up to you guys because 
y'all were younger and brighter. So talk, uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Tell us a little bit about it and its purpose and um, what its mission is and, and what you did to try to further that mission. Well, I think the, the call has been um, because there has been a vacancy and there is a built-in structural vacancy uh, with the third branch of the government, the, the justice system, whether it's criminal or civil. Um, what it lacks is what the other two branches have, and that is a PR arm or an educational arm, as we would like to frame it, um, to educate the public, public about what we do, why we do it, why things are decided the way they are. You don't have that availability any place in the educational system or by people who are hired in that industry to do that for us. So it leaves, it leaves that vacancy for somebody to fill. And what we tried to do with the mission of the civil justice uh, system was to uh, take up the banner of trying to educate the public in any means possible about the value of the civil justice system and therefore the spill, spill over the value of the criminal justice system as well. Um, to, to have a place that grievances could be adjudicated and resolved. And that's what we were trying to do and that's what we did. Now, if you want me to go on further and tell you some of the things we did, fine, but why don't you play it along and I'll, well, and I'll me, answer your questions. Let, 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 let me, uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put you, I'm gonna put you on the spot uh, here for a minute. You know, Robin and I have been practicing law for about a little over 30 years, each, each one of us. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know your career uh, it goes, much further back than that. Uh, I think of you and, uh, and uh, Tommy Malone, who was another lawyer who did medical malpractice that, have, that recently passed away as being sort of the, the, the fathers of that type of practice, you know, here in Georgia, because there was, there's really a time when it was not, uh, uh, not considered uh, cricket, if you will, to sue doctors and to pursue relief for clients who, who got bad medicine. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, as they used to say on the Radio Western, return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear and tell us how you began your career. And uh, did you do criminal work? Did you do uh, all kinds of stuff? Uh, but before you were uh, really primarily a, a medical malpractice expert, uh, what kind of stuff did you do earlier in your career and how did that career develop? Well, Lester, you got about 12 questions in there. <laughs> and I want you to answer all of them, every single one of them. Well, I'll do the best I can, but let me first uh, start off by saying that I tried my first medical malpractice case in Walton County in 1980. And I, my latest case that I tried was in Clark Superior Court in January of this year. So it spanned a long time. Um, and it's been an educational thing for me, um, and, and it's become a passion for me. Um, and the reason why it became a passion is that I had uh, two cases come in the same week, because I was like everybody else. I didn't take cases against doctors, um, and they were so egregious, they needed to have a dress done. One of them was uh, some folks that had... Uh, an elderly, elderly person who was in a nursing home here in Athens and ended up with a decubitus ulcer, which you can have. But because of lack of uh, bedding and, and personnel, I mean, it became the size of a grapefruit and as deep as half of it. And I was incensed by that because it was not necessary. He was there to get out of the, get out of the nursing home, not to die. That was one. And the second one came in that week. I had a uh, woman come in. She must have been 65 or 66. And she had remarried this man who was about three or four years older than she was. And they had decided to just enjoy their golden years and to travel and do other things. And so they decided quickly to go get, you know, let's go get some medical stuff, see what else we need to do so we don't have any anything pop up. And so they did. And she came out fine. And then he went over to Atlanta. And there was this uh, vascular surgeon there, 
and uh, he, instead of doing a proper workup, he drew a line drawing of of plaque inside of the carotid arteries and neck arteries, and told the man that he needed to have that reamed out. So of course the man listened to his doctor, like we all southern all of us southerners do, and he did, and he ended up stroking out on the table for an uh, operation he didn't need to have. So when the lady lady came into me, it almost it didn't almost it did bring tears to my eyes. She says, "Now, instead of what we had planned, I'm changing diapers three or four times a day." That's not right. You know, it wasn't right. And those kinds of things need to have redress. And that that motivated me to go and do what I do. You know, I don't I don't think I don't think Jay I ever had a a, a medical malpractice case myself till. Uh, somebody came to my office and uh, the doctor in his records had put talk to patient about mistake. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people uh, don't really realize the exact basis of a medical malpractice claim because they think that just because you got a bad outcome, you know, you went to the doctor to get cured, he wasn't able to cure you, uh, that they have a claim. Uh, what, what kind of what kind of problems does that cause you in trying those cases? Uh, and, and, and what, you know, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here and say, you know, look, uh, the doctor is the, about the only class of people that we sue that are actually trying to help somebody, uh, when, uh, when, and they get sued for it. So, uh, how, how do you, how do you deal with those, those issues? Well, you deal with them at the beginning and you deal with them up front. Now, what I have learned over the years with studying uh, many different things, and this, all this can be done in a separate podcast if necessary, but we do acknowledge and we should acknowledge that the, uh, that the medical profession is an important profession. It's a calling. And that calling is one that we place a lot of our faith into. And in my research and going back and studying, it, it, it's akin to some things that Joseph Campbell worked on. Um, and he, and he, you know, the, the medicine man and the shaman um, and in Christianity, um, uh, Jesus, healers are protected. Um, but you're talking about Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, the, 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 uh, the studier of myths and uh, wrote several books about that. Yes. Um, and, and I recommend that because he understood the thread of all societies and humanity to protect um, the, the, the medicine man. Uh, and that's a good thing. But there becomes a time when the medicine man breaks faith. And when the medicine man abandons the patient, uh, abandons the calling and makes it for money instead of for uh, patient care. When, when, do, when he does things egregiously or she does things egregiously, where when you hear the story, um, Lester, uh, when you hear the story and you say, oh my God, that's when they have broken faith. And when you break the faith, then that's when you can get redress in a medical malpractice situation. Now, there's plenty of medical practice goes on, as we both know, but it doesn't raise to the level that we can get redress for those people. Can you tell us a little bit, Jay, about uh, your thoughts about medical malpractice cases versus other types of personal injury cases? I know through your career, you've handled just about everything. Um, and you tend to specialize now in medical malpractice, or that's the way we think of you, but I know you've handled everything. Do you think medical malpractice cases are more complex, harder to try, um, harder to get a, a successful verdict on, or what are your thoughts? Um, yes, they're harder. I think uh, anybody in the legal profession would, would say they're probably the, the hardest ones to try. Um, and the hardest ones to get verdicts in. Um, there are some that are just as heart-wrenching, um, custody of children, um, and those kinds of things. Um, uh, sexual misconduct that causes harm. There are things that are that are wrenching, um, but they're not nearly 
as hard in many respects to try as a medical malpractice case. What the lawyer is faced with in a medical malpractice case is uh, knowing as much or more than the defendant doctor um, and being able to question that doctor um, on a level that the doctor respects and understands and hold him to the standards that, that his other doctors hold him to or her to. And so that is the hard part. Um, and and the, the part of it all comes down to what I told Lester a moment ago. If you have the oh my God story and you can place that in a narrative and deal with people that are on the jury as humans and, and not make this a medical case, you cannot, you've got to know the medicine to make, your, make sure you don't fall in any traps. But you can't try a medical case. This is not some board making a decision on a doctor. This, these are laymen deciding whether or not they have violated, whether or not the doctors have violated what their expectations are uh, from a doctor. So it makes it very difficult. Um, and as you know, I, I go to a lot of trouble um, to work up on these cases to find out the right language to use, the right presentation, the right sequence, etc., to put forth and what to ask your witnesses and what not to ask your witnesses, what to leave for cross-examination and what, and what not to. So you can go into this in depth that I'm not sure this is the proper broadcast to do it on, but more than willing to at some other time. So, so, so Jay, with, uh, uh, you know, and we talked a little bit about 9-11 earlier and how, uh, and of course, at, uh, with 9-11, you had policemen and firefighters, you know, first responders, you know, were on the cutting edge of that crisis. Now with the COVID-19 crisis, we've got doctors and nurses and uh, hospitals, healthcare providers that are on the cutting edge of, of trying to provide treatment against this uh, pandemic that we're currently experiencing. How do you think that that's going to change uh, medical malpractice and how jurors view medical malpractice if it changes it at all. I can't imagine it wouldn't change it, but I'm not in my own mind. Uh, don't know where it takes us. Well, first of all, they deserve halos. I mean, these people have been uh, angels. They've done a wonderful job. They've come to the, they've come to the rescue. They've many of them um, have, have really, um, um, I mean, they've, they've died from this stuff and many of them have been sick. There's a large portion. So you can just, you can say nothing but wonderful things. Uh, reminds me of my grandfather who was a doctor who took, you know, went out in the country and did things for, for collard greens and a cricket, you know, so they came in not for any other reason other than to care for people and perform their calling. But Lester, that's not anything to matter with that. And that doesn't mean that there has not been things that need to be redressed. Think about it. Look, think about them as the ones that need redress because they have not been treated properly by a lot of the system. They have not been provided the, what they need to have. Uh, they have, they have uh, been laid off in some circumstances because of, uh, profit motives and not having enough in a particular area. There's a lot of things that go that are going on where where redress needs to be made and the scales need to be balanced. And that's our job. That's our job. Our job is not just to have the medical profession as a victim, because as you know, I get quite a few cases referred to me by the medical profession. So sure. So. Uh, let, 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 let me ask you this. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about is about frivolous medical malpractice. You know, this was a frivolous medical malpractice case uh, that was filed. We, somebody reads about it in the newspaper or whatever else. Uh, and also people talk about, oh, they just filed this frivolous case because they thought they were going to get, uh, get, get, a, get, get a quick settlement out of it. And, of course, you and I, uh, having handled these kind of cases, know 
a little bit about the amount of expense that's involved to actually bring the case before you actually get to the courthouse door and uh, about the, the, the unique nature of medical malpractice policies and consent to settle. So could you talk a little bit about, about those and what kind of uh, issues those raise? That always brings a smile to my, my face, Lester, because uh, I, I, I think, you know, I think lawyers are pretty smart people. Um, and, and they can pretty well understand that, um, you know, since we take these things on a contingency fee basis, uh, there's no part at the end of the rainbow. And if you don't win, you don't get paid. And so, and you cannot get anything for your client. So it, the frivolous lawsuits are self-regulating. Uh, anybody that's foolish enough, to let the ego get involved or see something out of ignorance and try to make a case out of it, um, they will pay a very, very big price. And you talk about expense now. Uh, I don't know anybody trying these kind of cases on a regular basis that doesn't spend out of the pocket somewhere around at least $100,000. Um, you know, I joke at times, I say, you know, I don't believe in gambling, but they laugh at me and say, well, I take medical malpractice cases on a contingency fee basis. So I, I don't know. But, but just, just, to, just to emphasize that point, you know, I'm used to having a, having a witness, Jay, and I, I just want to emphasize that point because many, I, in fact, I hope most of our listeners are not lawyers and are, are, are people who are trying to learn about the justice system. But you're talking about fronting, taking $100,000 out of your pocket and, and putting that out to pay for experts and court reporters and uh, that kind of thing in order to just bring the case to trial with no, uh, no real guarantee that, uh, that, that the jury is not going to reject your pleas. Well, that's true, Lester. And let's, if, if, you, if you allow me to um, go off the fairway just a little bit, but not into the weeds. Sure. There are two cases that the public has in their, in their mind, always dealing with, with, uh, with frivolous lawsuits. One is, of course, the McDonald's case, and the other is a O.J. Simpson case, where they know that justice went awry in both of those in their minds, even though we know more details. You don't try to move that because that's what the public believes. However, if you're very careful in your examination of prospective jurors, you can eliminate that by making this statement. And that is, um, this is a case according to so-and-so and so-and-so. It's a very serious case. And uh, both sides acknowledge it's a serious case. This is not like one of the one of the cases, uh, frivolous cases you may have heard out, heard of McDonald's. You can mention whatever you want to. Uh, this is one that both sides acknowledge. Now, if they want to come up and say this is um, this is a frivolous suit, then you know let them come in and say that because it'll be to their detriment if you screen your cases right. So that is an upfront thing that we plant in, in the very beginning of a case. Jay, let me ask you about um, talk, along the lines of what is a frivolous case. Uh, I've always, I do a little bit of me medical malpractice, not as much as you do, obviously, but I've always taken the position that because in Georgia, we have to file an expert's affidavit with a complaint. So you haven't have had an expert look at your case and, and vouch for it and say, yeah, that there was malpractice here before you can ever even get to court. I've always taken the position there's no such thing as a frivolous medical malpractice case. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, um, I think with an affidavit um, um, that um, that pretty much supports exactly what you're saying, and I would agree with that. Um, and that's a trial technique that, that you can use and has been used by you and by me on occasion. And there's nothing to the matter with that. Um, I think from a, pub, a publicity point of view, um, that is that is really the best avenue to go on to try to um, diffuse um, the McDonald's case and um, and the O.J. Simpson case um, to make the distinctions. The public un would understand that, um, and that's a great messaging technique. And I would I would 
advocate us consider doing that in the civil justice, you know, breaking around. They don't know if that comes up again. Yeah. I don't hear much of that anymore about federal law. It may come up again. It's not going around too much. But I had it in one of the last medical malpractice trials I had where the defense attorney, uh, in closing argument, thank you for doing this, um, argued to the jury that this case was nothing more than uh, like a car wreck or anybody, any. Tom, Dick, and Harry can go file a lawsuit over anything, even when it's totally has no merit. So I just let him go on and on and on about that. And then when I stood up in my final close, I said, I explained all about the affidavit law and that Georgia was very particular about that, that we have no frivolous cases because an expert, before I even got to come to court, had to say this was malpractice. And all the jurors were nodding their heads like, okay, all right. I think the well, defense it, attorney walked into it, you know, stepped in it and that. Well, I, so, yes, uh, I so Jay, I, I would agree with that, Robin. And if you go into what I had to discuss with the doctor last night, he wasn't <coughs> partly qualified for us to use him as an expert because he hadn't practiced in that area of three out of the five years and hadn't done that particular uh, determination and go down into the weeds with how, how we have to screen yeah. a case. I mean, it's pretty clear. Yes, it's not frivolous. So, uh, so Jay, I want to move on to to another uh, subject, and it's sort of the the lawyer in uh, public policy a little bit. Uh, you, you served as uh, president of the state bar of Georgia uh, uh, before Robin and I did, uh, and and in fact, we're sort of a mentor uh, to to both of us. I think we're both proud to say, uh, and 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 I think a lot of times, you know, the public doesn't really understand. Uh, what the what the mission of the bar is. I remember uh, one time uh, uh, the, there was a public outcry about a lawyer that had done something outrageous and they thought he ought to be kicked out of the ABA. They didn't realize that being kicked out of the ABA is tantamount to being kicked out of the book of the month club. It doesn't affect <laughs> your status as, uh, as, as a lawyer. It's a voluntary bar, but then we have mandatory bars and uh, they have disciplinary functions, but they also have other functions uh, when I was president, I used to always say we, we really had two legitimate functions. One was uh, uh, protecting the integrity of the profession, but also promoting the cause of justice. So tell us a little bit about your, your time as state bar president. You're also president of Georgia Trial Lawyers, how those were the same and how those were different, and, uh, and, and what you see as the role of a, of, of, a, of a bar leader in today's civil justice discussion. Well, the bar leader has to meet the time that uh, that, that the that the leader is president, and um, and the reason why I, I ran a contested race for president was I was um, I was tired, uh, and you could even say sick and tired of of lawyers being slammed and the courts being attacked because that was a time when um, we had so much assault going on um, from um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, um, trying to promote uh, antagonism in, in the judicial system by having uh, partisan elections. Um, and, and then, you know, the rampant of time we had for a number of years um, where, you know, every, every time you spoke to somebody, they had a lawyer joke, they were going to tell you. And that, of course, undermines um, the profession and under, undermines their faith in, in the justice system. So I, I ran for office with a definite mission in mind that I was going to do what I could to reverse that. And with the help with um, Reinhardt and Ingram, uh, the presidents before me, we got past initiatives to start messaging, um, and we did, uh, the public. Um, we also um, uh, pushed back uh, the attack of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, um, who was trying to uh, just put partisan elections and get Carol Hunstein, Justice Carol Hunstein, off the bench. Um, and using all kind of tactics. And so we fought that back and using good messaging, the value of the justice system and 
and trying to diffuse, and this is for a different, different conversation, but the methodology that was being used by Carl Rove and Frank Lunson to attack um, our, um, uh, the third branch of the government. I mean, it, it's, it was a, an attempt and still is an attempt to gain control over the decision-making, the impartial decision-making of the, of, of, of the justice system. And so I, have a, I still have a great passion. As you can tell from my voice, I cannot stand the idea of corporations making decisions uh, for profit for their particular shareholders at the, uh, at the expense of the public. And, and that, that offends me greatly. And I think the civil justice system is uniquely uh, positioned to be objective and impartial and message uh, that, and I hope it does. Jay, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the difference between when you were president of GTLA, about 2,000 members, all plaintiffs' personal injury attorneys, versus being president of the entire state bar of Georgia, about 50,000 uh, lawyers that, that do all sorts of practices, both criminal, civil, uh, government, private, all types of lawyers. Well, as you know, Robin, um, when I was president of the, of the Georgia Trial Lawyers, uh, at, that, at that moment in time, we were under assault um, um, as a profession, uh, being plaintiff's lawyers, uh, disparaged, um, and um, we were uh, placed in a box of all being Democrats, and which most of us were, but not all were, and trying to make this a partisan, um, a, a partisan divide that we could be pigeonholed. And what I tried to do was try to expand that um, by getting um, the uh, people in who were uh, Republicans in the lineup and trying to get um, uh, uh, women into the, into the lineup. Um, and, and trying to seek out leadership that would lead us towards what our true mission is, and that is to preserve the civil justice system so that people would have a fair chance at redress um, in, front of the, in front of a jury. And so that's what I was confronted with, and that's what I tried to do. And, you know, um, and thank goodness I was there because now we have you here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and thank goodness we have Lester here as well because I was there, and he and I had a conversation one time where he was very kind to me, and uh, and uh, and I said you need to run for the state bar as well, and and so yes, um, uh, we're very blessed with both of you. And I very kind you are, and uh, Jay, I'll say that. Uh, I owe you a lot because I, I do believe the only reason I got into leadership of Georgia Trial Lawyers Association was with your help and your um, support. And um, I think you were ahead of your time as far as bringing in diversity in leadership. And I want that to be acknowledged that uh, you had to bring some contemporaries of yours into the fold to understand we needed a diverse program a diverse leadership and i appreciate that so so jay um I, you, you've got to have a favorite case uh that that you had uh in all these years uh tell us about your favorite your favorite case uh, or the case that you're most proud of well i've got one criminal case i have claimed to fame on because you know i only tried about a handful of those <laughs> I, I didn't i didn't try very many criminal cases um and it was one where i was uh, representing this guy that uh uh he just looked like a crook um and and i believed the story he was being accused of stealing an old man's money the old man's family had uh, just kind of abandoned him. And so uh, uh, the client uh, just kind of looked after him, drove him around, got his food, whatever he wanted to do. And they had a great relationship. Well, when the man passed away, they, um, uh, the family uh, decided they would, they would 
file criminal charges against him for stealing the man's money. Well, they had no um, real evidence, and we lost the case in front of um, we lost the case in front of the jury. We had a uh, Robin, no disrespect, but we had an all woman jury. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this guy looked guilty, okay? But they had no evidence. And so I listed, and this is my claim to fame, uh, I listed about uh, 12 to 15 things that could have been different because it was all a circ circumstantial case. They had no direct evidence. And the Court of Appeals on, 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 on appeal gave him an acquittal without a new trial. That's uh, right. And I, that's my claim to fame there. In the medical malpractice arena, the, the best one I had was here in Clark County. Um, I had a case where uh, the a doctor from the Medical College of Georgia um, uh, had claimed that he uh, was board certified. And so um, I knew that he wasn't, and I was cued in he wasn't by one of his fellow doctors. Uh, uh, and, and so I brought out those big medical index books about, um, <clears throat> about uh, uh, specialties. And it was, you know, you get about six, eight of those that cost you an enormous amount of money. We don't have to do that nowadays. But um, I kept bringing out the book and saying, where are you in here? And, uh, and I, you know, gave him time to see, you know, find his files out of his attic and over lunch and all this other stuff. And, um, and so we won that case because they did not vet their expert the right way. And the expert lied on the stand. Boy, was that fun. Jay, how many cases, uh, how many trials do you think you've had in your career? Um, I don't know for sure. I know back when I became um, a member of something, I had to list uh, over 100. So I'd say somewhere, you know, over 100, uh, 200, I don't know, um, over the time. Right now, as you know, doing medical malpractice, we don't uh, try that many cases, maybe uh, one or two a year. Uh, I've tried as many as five before the year I was president of the state bar. Um, and if that's, that gets to be really onerous to do that. Um, and I've tried them back to back week to week. And, and, um, and so, but they don't do that to me anymore. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's hard to do. Yeah. So. Well, there's a, a sentiment that not as many cases are getting tried period. Uh, regardless of medical malpractice, but just not as many trials as there used to be. What do you think about that? Well, <clears throat> this is a result of um, the, the thing that grinds on me the most, and that is the, the corporations, the corporatists who have um, worked um, uh, some systematically over the years to change the rules um, in federal federal rules and uh, so to make it a motion practice where people are uh, having their cases decided uh, on motions and not by a real trial. And so that gets to be one of the problems um, that exist. Um, and the other problem, uh, um, Robin, you know my feelings about tort reform and and the fact that it's been such a um, fraud on the American public and that they're trying to push uh, the, the wrongdoer and their insurance company from paying legitimate claims. That didn't used to be the case. And by all the publicity and money they had to spend, they have altered, uh, the corporatists have altered the, the what people think of as common knowledge uh, and they think that people um, they're suspicious of anybody that files a lawsuit and so we, our job is to work through that the, the analogy I make is tort reform was bad enough it was like an atomic bomb but what has happened to the jury system itself is that um, it's been like radiation um, it's, it's caused a cynicism 
um, of the public. And, and the lawyers who, who lived outside of the perimeter in Georgia, you know, could take somebody and, and have a, a $2,000 um, automobile wreck case. And instead of them having to pay their bills and um, their lost wages and get their car repaired, they could go to court and get that amount of money in return. Nowadays, they can't afford to take that case because they may not win because the the injuries are not egregious enough um, and the public is not willing to let it, uh, to understand what has happened to them. And it's our job as a Civil Justice Foundation to bring back to the surface what we are about, what the court system is about, to let the public know that either you let the person who has been harmed eat it, or you let the person responsible uh, pay for it and insure it if they need to. Or third, let the, let the public pick it up in the form of taxes. Um, once you can get that concept in, into the minds of the people, they, they begin to understand what's going on. And <clears throat> that's an important thing. You know, the tort system, which is what us three do. It's not the only civil cases that happen, but it's what we do. Um, it's, it's there for multiple reasons, not just to get monetary redress. It's also there to make sure that the behavior changes, that you have behavior change. Unlike the criminal justice system, you can punish the wrongdoer, but the victim gets no redress. And what I'm afraid our corporatist friends would like us to do is to make sure there's no redress in the civil system either. So, um, right. excuse but, me hey, for being cynical about that. They want no no accountability for wrongdoing. No. Uh, but I always like to tell a jury that they, as a corporate body, 12 people are the uh, smallest form of local government known to man. And they, as a jury, the 12 of them as a, a small local government can decide what's going to happen to the wrongdoer. And they tend to get that. Yes. And that's a, that's a wonderful argument. Can I use it some? <laughs> yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Robin, I think it may be, uh, you, you and I talked earlier that, uh, that, that you had one question you wanted to ask all of our guests. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Jay will be the first one. And I can't think of a better person to ask your ask your one question to that, that our friend Jay Cook. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think it's a great question. It was a great idea. It was Robin's idea, not mine. But, uh, but Robin's going Robin's gonna to put you on the spot here, Jay. And uh, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer. Jay, uh, tell us what you, uh, how you define justice or what justice means to you. Well, that's not so hard. Um, justice really depends upon your value system. Um, and my value system uh, is based upon fairness. Um, and and what the, what the uh, justice system, what justice does is try to hold people accountable um, and give people redress and a voice to be heard. You know, if you think about the alternative, um, the alternative we've seen in other societies where, you know, ends in revolution or it ends in um, uh, uh, frustration um, and cynicism um, because people are not treated fair becomes a very important part of it. And if you step back from what we do, we are stewards of this justice system. We are the ones who, who have the trust resting in us to make sure that the system does not go away, to make sure that there, there, there's not riots, that makes sure that, that people can get heard and get compensated. Those are important things for a society. And, you know, ours, um, you know, you know, People will say, well, we've got the best system in the world. Well, it's only about 70% effective as far as I'm concerned. It still has a lot of work to do, but it's better than anything else. 
And so we have to keep plotting and do that. And that's justice to me. It's, it's redress. Um, it's being fair. It's the value system that I have. And that's why I love it so much. It's true north to me. Um, and, and I feel very comfortable in it to try to do the right thing um, for the right reason. That's, that's justice to me. Now, you don't, we don't always win, but that doesn't mean we lose. Jay, we appreciate your uh, being with us. You're our first episode on our new podcast, See You in Court. You've had an incredible career, and we'll obviously continue to watch it and just enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for being a friend of the justice system and, and our friend. Uh, yes, personally. thank you, Jay. Been my pleasure, guys. Look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. One of the things we're going to do uh, every episode, uh, Lester and I will try to bring you um, something new, something that that struck us in the news, law related. Um, we'll do that each each episode for you. And I, the, the thing that struck me in the news uh, this week is the Georgia State Bar Young Lawyers Division Legal Food Frenzy. Uh, and that is a program that our young lawyers in the state bar and the president is Will Davis now. But um, each year they have a campaign of raising money through the legal community that all goes to local community food banks. Uh, and it was particularly challenging this year with the COVID shutdown. Uh, no one's getting out to see each other. We don't have any social events to go to. But as of uh, yesterday, the legal food frenzy had raised $545,000 to send to their local community food banks. And what I mean by that is if the money is raised in Macon, the money goes to the Macon Community Food Bank. If it's raised in Valdosta, it goes to the Valdosta Community Food Bank. So I'm uh, amazed at that. I'm not really surprised because our young lawyers are incredible people. And my hat's uh, off to Will Davis, the president, and all the younger lawyers who started this. It's in conjunction with the attorney general, because Chris Carr, hats off to him as well and his um, department. And uh, I think they should get a big acknowledgement about what they're doing to help feed the community. Totally agree, Robin. And uh, in fact, at one point, the Georgia Tech Office of General Counsel was way high with yeah. uh, uh, among the leaders there. And as a as a Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket, I was particularly uh, proud proud of them. Uh, the item which I have uh, has to do with uh, something that I talked to a, a reporter about at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. It's not a case that I'm involved in, but I talked with him about it this week. It's Joshua Sharp, who's written an excellent article about a murder that took place in 1985 uh, when a white man walked into an African-American church in Southeast Georgia and fatally shot a couple there. Uh, then fled the scene, and uh, there was an investigation into it. They did not immediately uh, locate uh, 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 who had done it, but they located uh, about 100 different suspects uh, because it was such a senseless and brutal murder uh, that took place. They went back and later opened it and uh, subsequently convicted a man named Dennis Perry, who has been in prison now for nearly 20 years. Uh, the Innocence Project took this case on, and the Innocent Project, uh, the, the, the perpetrator uh, of this crime had dropped uh, his glasses or dropped a pair of glasses uh, while they were in there. They've been able to find DNA on those glasses and lead that DNA back to a suspect that uh, had actually told uh, other people in his life at that time that he was the, the perpetrator of these murders. And so now uh, Mr. Mr. Perry, who has been in, in the penitentiary for 20 years now, has a motion for new trial. And it's done by the Innocence Project and by lawyers uh, at King and Spaulding, which is a large law firm here, uh, who's taken the case pro bono. They have uh, filed a motion, extraordinary motion for new trial. Uh, they're awaiting a response from the DA's office uh, down in Camden County, where this took place. Uh, but it looks like, and I certainly hope, 
and, and believe based on the motions that I read and the comments that, that, that I gave the reporter when he called me, that this is an innocent man that's been in jail for about 20 years. So uh, I'm hoping certainly that, uh, that he is uh, uh, freed soon. And uh, kudos to King and Spaulding and to the Innocent Project, Innocence Project and to all those folks who are taking these cases and really applying modern technology to go back uh, and, and to try to set some of these people free who are wrongfully convicted. Because, you know, part of justice is making sure that you have the right person in the penitentiary and not just somebody uh, in the penitentiary. Great. Great example, Lester. I followed that case on the Undisclosed podcast, and I'd recommend any listener who's interested to listen to that podcast. Extraordinary story out of South Georgia, and uh, we hope. I think he. I think he at least should get a new trial, but I'm not the judge, of course. But very good story. I think that does it for us this episode. I do want to before we go. I want to thank. Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey, they have their podcast, Great Trials Podcast, and both Steve and Yvonne have been instrumental in helping us get this one going, making recommendations, and I appreciate their help. And I also want to give a shout out to our producer, Raz Misher, with his company, Pod on the Go. He's a great producer, and Raz, we just can't thank you enough for getting us off the ground on this. And I think that does it. And on behalf of the Civil Justice Foundation of Georgia, this is Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate. And we'll see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.